0: Good morning. morning. Hope you've had a great weekend so far and we're glad you're here today to worship with us. Start a new week together with God's people, worshiping Him. So we're really glad you're here. For those of you that are visiting with us, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, We always like our visitors to know who we're trying to be as a church family. We are trying to simply be Christians. We're trying to simply be followers of Jesus Christ. We put the name Church of Christ on the sign because we only want to claim Jesus, we only want to follow Him, and we would sure love for you to join us in that goal. So if you have any questions about Great Oaks, if you have any questions about Christianity, please, please let us know. We're trying to follow the Lord. We'd love for you to join us in that as well. It is the first Sunday of September. And hopefully this month we're going to do all the normal good things that we try to do every month as a church family. But there are two in particular that we are highlighting this month. One is it is a 10-year celebration for us here at Great Oaks. And we're celebrating 10 years as a bilingual church family, 10 years of our Spanish-speaking ministry. So we're going to have a church picnic on the 16th. We're going to have a bilingual worship together on the 24th. We hope you can be part of those things. The other thing we're celebrating is next week... We are celebrating our Bible classes. We are blessed with Bible classes for all ages. We are blessed with teachers who work very hard and do a great job to get Bible classes together. I know I'm thankful as a parent uh, that our three kids are getting to grow up in a congregation with so many good Bible classes that they're getting to have along the way. and. With the, with the COVID years behind us, we hope and think now uh, we want everybody to recommit ourselves to being part of our Bible classes. If you've gotten out of the habit in the last few years, we're trying to provide an, an on-ramp back in, and we're doing that next Sunday. So next Sunday is our breakfast and Bible class with 500 of your favorite people. We're calling it that because we hope to have 500 people in our Bible classes. We've never done that before. We never had 450 in our Bible classes before. So we hope we're going to set a new Great Oaks record, which by the way, uh, we're thankful our Bible classes have already been this year the best attended they've ever been. So thank you for being part of those. But if you haven't been yet, please be here next Sunday morning. Invite a friend to join you. We hope everybody can be here. We're going to have breakfast at 8 a.m. in the gym. As Mickey gives the announcements later, they're going to put up a slide for you to sign up if you can for breakfast next week, just so we'll know best we can how many people are coming, and then we'll start our Bible classes at nine. So hope you can be part of those. Uh, we think it's gonna be a great Sunday morning together. For our class or for our sermon this morning, for our sermon this morning, we're gonna talk about Christian faith status and partiality. One of the ways that we hope we can show the world that God's way is the best way of treating people. And I hope it will be a good study today. Let's pray and then we'll jump into that. God, thank you so much for loving us and guiding us. We're humbled by your greatness. We're humbled by your love. We're so thankful that Jesus is willing to come here and show us how to live, to show us your way, and to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again, to show us he truly is God. Lord, I pray we'll live for him every day. God, I'm thankful for every soul here. I'm thankful that we've made the decision this morning to get up and come be with your people, to be before your throne in worship. I pray, God, that our hearts have been with you, and I pray that they'll be with you as we study from your word. God, we are, we are thankful today for our Bible classes. We're thankful for our teachers. We're thankful for all the growth that comes out of those. I pray, God, that however many we have next Sunday, there will be a great day of recommitting ourselves to our Bible classes. Lord, as we open your word together this morning, I pray that what is said will be what you want to be said and that will grow from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, be opening to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Sometimes we have sermons that trace themes through Scripture. Sometimes we have sermons that pull together a lot of Scriptures to, to try to fit things together. And sometimes we have sermons where we just sit down in one place and just say, what does this section of Scripture mean? say to our lives and that's what this morning's going to be we're going to sit down in one place we'll bring a few scriptures alongside it as we go but we're going to settle down in James chapter two verses one through thirteen this morning and as I said I hope it'll be a study that just reminds us there's a certain way God's people want to treat each other and want to make sure that's part of who we are because it is different from the way the world does things I hope it'll be a good study let's talk about James first of all what's going on with James James, who wrote this book, short five-chapter book, is the brother of Jesus. If you look in Matthew 13, verse 55, 55, it tells us Jesus had four brothers and sisters, plural. So Jesus was the oldest, of course, because Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. But four younger brothers, one of them was James. Uh, We're told in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Him before His resurrection. And there was something about the resurrection of Jesus that you just couldn't deny. James was one of those brothers who becomes a Christian and a strong one. He becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and he writes this letter that Christians have always loved. And, and if I had to guess, we have some people in this room whose favorite book in the Bible is the book of James. And the reason I think for that is James is, is very applicable to life. You read James and it's easy to see how you can put it into your life. It's not always easy to put it into your life, but it's easy to see how you should. It's easy to say, okay, this is what God wants me to do. In fact, I knew a preacher up in Kentucky whenever someone became a Christian. He said, the first thing I want you to do is read the book of James five times. And and the reason he said that is because it's a good how to live the Christian life type of book. And James 2 tells us another one of those Great challenges uh, here in the, in the book of James. As he ends chapter 1, if you have it open in front of you, you can probably see that. He's mentioned what he calls pure and undefiled religion. We would call that today real faith. Real, not fake faith, not half-hearted faith. Real faith, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And I think that mention of real faith and of treating even the poor in the world the right way, I think is what leads James to this next section. And so what I've got today, if you see the outline, I notice three things here in this section. I think most people divide this section into about these same categories, three different sections, and that'll be our lesson today. What are the three things James says here? And how can we make this part of our life? So the first thing we're going to see in this section, verses 1 through 4, is what Richard read just a second ago. The temptation to partiality. The temptation to partiality. We'll explain what that means. So he starts off this section, James 2 verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Your translation may say there in verse 1, an attitude of partiality. And that's the, that's the translation I've decided uh, to use for the outline. We'll see that same word pop up later in this section. But the New American Standard Version here calls it personal favoritism. Do not hold your faith with personal favoritism. What are we talking about? Well, here's how one um, resource that I looked at this last week talked about that word that is translated there personal favoritism or partiality. You can see the Greek word there if you're interested in that sort of thing is prosopolepsia. Prosopolepsia. But here's what that word means. The fault of one who has respect to the outward circumstances of men and not to their intrinsic merits. Do you hear that so far? Someone who notices the outside circumstances, not the intrinsic merits, and so prefers as the more worthy one who is rich, highborn, or powerful to another who is destitute of such, of such gifts. You understand the problem we're talking about here? Someone who that, It's a, this partiality idea. Someone who prefers the rich, the good-looking, the powerful, the famous, the cool to those that don't seem to have those things. He says, let me go back to it, James 2.1, do not hold your faith in Jesus with that type of attitude. So... Let's just remind ourselves, sadly, that's the way the world does things. Sadly, we live in a world where people often give greater honor to those who have status. We live in a world where the wealthy are treated differently than those that are not. Where those that are good-looking are treated differently than those that are not as good-looking. Where those that are popular are treated differently than those that are not. He says, that's not the way we're supposed to be doing things. And and if the world is doing it that way, and, and they do... We're going to be tempted to fall right into that. We're going to be tempted to to have that same problem in our life. And so James goes on, he gives this example, if you noticed it when Richard read it just a second ago. And he describes two people coming into a a Christian assembly. And they had had visitors and their worship services in the first century, just like we do today. He said, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, which was a, a sign of status in those days especially, a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes... And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. So you you see the two people coming in, right? He says, if you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The way I've described this section in my own head is... uh, is James saying to the church, if those two types of people come into your assembly, don't you dare treat the wealthy-looking person different than you treat the poor-looking person. And I hope that sinks in 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 our faith, not just in our assemblies, but in our faith. That's the way the world does it. The world is going to say, hey, this person looks like they're somebody. Let's give them some honor. This person doesn't look like they're, they're very much in the world's eyes. We don't have to give them much attention or much honor. He says in verse 4, you're making distinctions if you do that, and you become judges with evil, evil motives. Evil motives. What would the motive be? What, what, what is the world's motive in wanting to give honor to those who seem to have honor? I guess there's some sort of selfish pride in people that think if they can if they can get someone who seems to have honor to like them, that maybe it makes them a better person themselves, that maybe it lifts them up a little higher. Uh, I don't don't know that I fully know all the the motives, but we see it in ourselves sometimes. He says, don't do that. Whatever those motives are that make us want to to honor some and not honor others, he says, get those out. A verse to write down that I think goes along with this is Romans 12, verse 16. And and Romans 12 is another great section about Christian living and, and different challenges of Christian living. But look what he says here in verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Your translation may say prideful. Do not be prideful in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That middle section is the one that I think goes along with James 2 here especially. Don't be prideful. Associate with the lowly. Don't, don't think you're too good to talk to people or treat people with kindness and love and respect. That's the way the world does it. We should be better than that. We as people who believe everybody was created in the image of God, we should treat people differently than that. And of course, this, this passage and maybe that section is focusing on the rich-poor category, but this goes in a lot of directions. You can apply this in a lot of different ways that the world honors some and doesn't honor others. You, you can apply this to if someone's more educated and someone's less educated. I hope we're not going to give more honor to the more educated and less to the less educated. If, if someone has a different race than I have, if two people walk in and one is the same color as me and, and one is not, am I going to give more honor to the one that's the same color as me and less to the one that's not? I hope we wouldn't do that whatever our background is. If two people walk in and one speaks my language and the other doesn't, I hope I still show kindness to the one who doesn't speak the same language as me, just like uh, I would to someone else. If someone I come across in my life seems to be in the popular crowd and someone else doesn't, I hope I'm not going to show more attention to the one in the popular crowd than the one that isn't. If someone's better looking than someone someone else, I hope I'm not going to show more attention with evil motives, as James says it, Now, I realize we're all going to connect with people differently. And some people will connect with some and won't connect with others. But I think what James is challenging us to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is to make sure we treat everybody with love, everybody we come across, everybody with kindness. You're going to connect with some people more than others. I understand that. God understands that. But make sure everyone in your life, as a Christian, you treat them with kindness and respect, no matter what their outward circumstances might appear to be. The second thing I see in this passage, as he goes on to drive his point home, he says, partiality is so unlike God. God made us in His image. God loves every one of us, from the ones the world thinks are important, the ones the world do not think is as important. God loves every person. He's watched every step. He knows how many hairs are on our heads, as as Matthew chapter 10 says it. He knows everything about us. God does not show partiality. Let's just put a few verses before I read James 2, 5 through 7. Let's put a few verses up that drive that home. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is when Samuel's going to anoint a king to replace Saul. And he goes to the house of Jesse, you remember, and he sees the oldest son. and And he's tall and he's strong and he looks like a warrior. And Samuel thinks in himself, this has got to be him. This has got to be the king. He looks like a king. And the Lord says to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, man is swayed by the outward appearance. There's that sad truth again. It says, but God is looking deeper than that. God is looking deeper at who we really are. Who we are that God created. Write down Acts 10, 34, and 35 if you're writing these down with us. This is right after Peter is learning in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter. He's learning that the gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for every race, it's for every background, it's for every language. And so Peter says, as God is teaching him this in Acts 10, he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. That's that same word that we have in James chapter 2. God is not one to show that he favors one over the other. But in every nation, the man who fears him... and does what is right is welcome to him God doesn't show partiality one more Colossians 3 verse 25 here talking about final judgment he says he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality again it's the same word in fact that word is used a lot as you can already tell it's used a lot in describing God that God does not treat the wealthy better than He does others. He doesn't treat one race better than He does others. God is is impartial. He loves everyone. He wants everyone to come to Him. And so God does not take this attitude that the world takes. God doesn't have these, these problems that our world has. And so back in James then, he says, Listen, my beloved brother. Remember, he just gave the situation where where someone might be tempted to honor the rich man and give him a good space and tell the poor man to go sit in the corner somewhere. He said, listen, my beloved brethren. Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Now that verse is not saying that God only chose the poor. You have have wealthy followers of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so He's not saying that only the poor... Are, are right with God. But he's saying God has wanted to lift up the poor to give them rich, richness and faith, wealth and faith. God does not despise the poor. God, God is wanting them to be lifted up. He, he's promised this kingdom and He wants them to have it. Why would you dishonor them? And so verse 6 he says, if you're telling the poor person, treating them with less respect, you're dishonoring the poor man. He says, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? What we think is happening there. That that rich dragging them into court. It could just mean general oppression. You know, sometimes people who are wealthy are able to, to get their way in the legal system more than those who aren't. And that's the, the again the sad way the world works. So maybe it just means that, that that the poor are able to take what they or the rich are able to take what they want. It could mean this. We have a letter from a Roman governor named Pliny, who, who is writing probably forty years after this, maybe more than that but not, not too many decades after this. And he is describing how they handled Christians as he's writing to the governor. And he tells, or as he's writing to the, the emperor. So the emperor and the governor are writing back and forth. And Pliny says, here's what I'm doing. If people are making accusations about Christianity, we take them into court and we ask them, there in front of the court, are you a Christian? And if they say yes, we give them a couple chances to change their mind. If they don't, we, we have them killed. If nothing else, for being obstinate, he says. Now, if someone else accuses them and brings them in, there's got to be someone that makes an official accusation. He said, we're not just taking people, just writing notes. Hey, I think this person's a Christian. He says, but if someone makes an official accusation, we bring them in, we ask them if they're a Christian, give them a few chances to change their mind. It just makes you think as a Christian, wow, what what a crazy world they were in, that some people still have those contexts today. But that was everyday life for them. At least a few decades after this, maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe he's saying, "Hey, it's, it's those that are rich enough to make a court, an official court order that are dragging you in before court." They're blaspheming verse seven, the fair name by which you have been called. Why would you Why would you honor the wealthy over that, when that tends to be the attitude? So that's what they were facing. But he's just trying to get back to that same point. God hasn't done that. God loves the poor and is trying to lift them up. He's not trying to put the wealthy above them, He's trying to lift them up to that same place where they can all follow God. And this is what the wealthy are doing in your world they're hurting you. Why would you give them greater honor? That whole section does remind me, by the way, that Scripture tells us God has always had a special place in His heart for the poor. You see that in Old and New Testaments, you see it in the life of Jesus. The Proverbs, for example, are filled with encouragements for God's people to help the poor. And that's a tough thing. I understand that. We, we wrestle with what helps and what doesn't help, and we'll dig into that more another time. But what I hope we can at least remind ourselves is that's where God's heart is. God wants to lift up those that are hurting in this world. Psalm 34 says, God draws near to the brokenhearted. The hurting of this world, God aligns Himself in a special way with that. You might remember Jesus told a story in Matthew 25. He's describing the end of time about how everybody's gathered before God and they're separated out from the sheep and the goats. And and what Jesus highlights in that story is He says, He looks at one side and says, You took care of me when I was hurting. You visited me when I was sick. You visited me in prison. On and on, the, the things you did to help me when I was hurting. They say, When did we do that? And He said, When you helped the least of these, you were helping me. Jesus had aligned himself in some way with the hurting, and he wants his people to try to lift them up. And so he says, don't don't show favoritism toward those that are are not hurting and and push aside those that are. God, in a special way, cares about them, and he hopes we will as well. The third thing I noticed in this section, he says, partiality is against God's law. So we're tempted to be partial because that's the way the world does it. But if we're looking at God, we realize God does not have that attitude and I don't want to have that attitude either. I want to be more like God. That's what we're trying to do as we're being transformed in Christ. And the third thing, I don't, want to, I don't want to disobey God's law. That's the law that I'm going to be judged by and this is part of it. And so he says, starting in verse 8, he says, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Now let's pause there a second. He's just said that the rich drag you into court. So I think he's thinking about their law. He says, but we're fulfilling the royal law, the law of the king. We're not just, we're not just following. There's always been a difference between the laws of man and the real laws of God. We're with God. That has always been God's people's uh, position. We're going to stand with God on that. And so he says, we're fulfilling the royal law, God's law, according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're supposed to do. And if we're dishonoring people who seem to not have status... In some way, we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if we're tempted to think it's not a big deal, he says in verse 9 and 10, but if you show partiality, there's that word again, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you, we might be tempted to look at God's law and say, well, I haven't killed anybody, and I'm not committing adultery, so I'm doing pretty good. He says, but loving your neighbor's part of it too. Don't think that's not a big deal. That's part of this too, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you've broken the law, you've broken the law. Now, sometimes we look at that and we say, this passage shows that that every commandment is the same before God. Let, let's sharpen that just a little bit. I, I think there's a half truth there that maybe we can say a little better, a little better. Let's sharpen that idea. So John 19, I do think, tells us there are different levels of sin, whatever however you want to term that. For example, in John chapter 19, Jesus tells Pilate, "He who delivered me to you has the greater sin." So Pilate had sin in convicting Jesus, but Judas had the greater sin in, in delivering Him over. So in some ways, they weren't the same, but they were both violators of the law. They were both sinners before God. Matthew 23, I think, says the same thing when Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you're tithing all your small little spices, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. I love that verse because Jesus says, there are some things that are weightier, but you should do all of it. Jesus is not saying only do the important things and the little things don't matter. That's not what he's saying. He's saying do all of it, but there are some things more important than others. And so it's not just that every sin's the same. So so how would we say that? Here's how I say it in my own mind. Though some sins are greater, as Jesus said... Any sin makes us guilty before God. I think that's what the Bible's saying on this idea. Yes, there are some sins that show a darker heart. There are some sins that hurt others worse than, than other sins. There are some sins that, that dishonor God more. But any sin makes us guilty before God. And that's what I think James is saying. Just because you haven't committed murder or adultery, if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you're still a sinner. And so the Bible always teaches from beginning to end, we all stand before God as sinners. We all stand before God as people who need His grace because we fall short in so many different ways. Some sins are greater, but any sin makes us guilty before God. And then this section ends, verses 12 and 13. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. We're not going to be judged eternally by the Roman law or the American law or whatever else. We will obey the laws of the land as they align with God's word. But we are people who will be judged by God's law. And he calls it the law of liberty. I think he's saying we've been set free from all those sins. We've been set free from not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We've been set free from murder and adultery and all the things that, that we all needed forgiveness for and to turn our life loose from. He says you're going to be judged by that. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he pulls the section together by saying, the way you treat others, that's going to impact how God's going to judge you. One definition of mercy that I saw this week, I think it's a good one. Kindness expressed towards someone in need. Uh, then what this, this was from a lexicon that was looking at that Greek word for mercy. He said, mercy is kindness expressed towards someone in need. You can see how God shows us mercy. We're in need. We need God's grace. We need God's forgiveness. So He shows us mercy by extending kindness to us. We're supposed to do the same to others. When people are hurting, people are struggling, when people don't have status that the world has, we still show kindness. That's who God's people should always be. And I hope it's who we are. As James started this section, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, with an attitude of partiality. As I hope we've seen, we're going to be tempted to do this because that's the way the world treats people. They honor some, they dishonor others. God doesn't do this. We want to be like God. We want to treat people with the full kindness and love that God treats people with. And we don't want to be a sinner before God. We don't want to violate God's law by not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We need to show that love that God wants us to show. This week and every week after it, as long as God lets the earth keep spinning, we're going to be surrounded by all different types of people. We're going to interact with people from all backgrounds, people who uh, have different things going on in their life, different amounts of wealth, different amount of status, different, amount, different amounts of fame. Uh, we're going to have to decide, how am I going to handle all that? Am I going to be like the world or not? We believe every person is made in the image of God. God loves them. He made them. They deserve our respect. They deserve our kindness. And and my last question, I guess, for the morning is this. How would Jesus handle all that? How how did Jesus handle all the different types of people? He didn't show preference to the wealthy. He didn't show preference to the good-looking didn't show preference to the people who, who seem to have honor and power and popularity and fame. Jesus treats everybody with the love of God. My prayer is that you and I, as we interact with all sorts of different type of people, that people will see Jesus Christ in us, in the way we show love and kindness to every person in our lives, no matter what background they come from. I hope this week we'll show people the goodness of Christianity, how we treat people. Maybe you need to take a step of faith this morning. Uh, That's always our encouragement when we come together, to encourage us to take steps of faith toward God, whatever the next step is. If you're not a Christian, I think you'll find this is what they did in the Bible to become a Christian. They hear about Jesus. There's this learning process. If you'd like to get together for a Bible study, start talking about what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and Christianity, let us know. Uh, It's the most important decision of your life. We'll let you see what the Bible says, and you can start thinking for yourself about who Jesus is. In the Bible, when they heard about Jesus then, they learned about Him, they came to a place of faith. And when they believed, they didn't stop there. That's not how you became a Christian in the Bible. You didn't stop at faith. That faith led you to repent, to make a commitment to live for Jesus, to confess that you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and on that confession, to have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism. Sin is what separates us from God. And the waters of baptism, those sins are washed away and we're back united with Jesus Christ. That's the promise that God makes in Scripture. If you're ready to become a Christian, let us know. If there's anything going on in your life you'd like us to pray about, let us know that too. If you'd like to talk privately, we'd be glad to talk with you privately. We're about to sing a song of invitation where you have a chance to come before the whole church family if you'd like to, to take a step of faith, to ask for prayers, to recommit your life. If we can help you in any way this morning, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace's hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless?